1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. You know of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Fishbone, and The Slackers, American bands that play ska mixed with rock, punk, soul, and funk. You probably also know of The Beat, The Specials, Madness, and Bad Manners, two-tone bands that were instrumental in the English ska revival of the 1970s and 80s. But are you familiar with the Jamaican originators of the genre? In this episode of New Books in Popular Music, I talk with Heather Augustine about her 2010 McFarland & Company book Ska and Oral History, in which she chronicles the history of the music through interviews with dozens of its creators. Not only does she interview members of some of the bands just mentioned, she also interviews legends of the genre, such as Lynn Tate, Roland Alfonso, the godfather of Ska, Laurel Aitken, and Toots Hibbert, to name just a few. Along the way, Augustine writes of Ska's beginnings in the shanty towns of Kingston and its movement through immigration to the industrial cities of England. She discusses the role of Ska in England's original skinhead movement, one which, contrary to popular misconceptions, embraced racial and ethnic diversity. Finally, Augustine discusses Ska in the United States as a melting pot of musical influences that include rock, punk, and funk, along with the traditional Jamaican fare. Heather Augustine is a correspondent for the Times of Northwest Indiana. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including The Village Voice, In These Times, and The Humanist. She lives in Chesterton, Indiana, where I reached her for this interview. Hello, Heather, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. How are you?
0: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. So why don't we start off with um, you telling us a bit about your your personal biography, where you grew up, that kind of thing.
0: Sure. Um, I grew up in Chesterton, Indiana. It's the same town I live in now. Um, I actually did leave for a while, I got out of Chesterton, so I went to school at uh, Bradley University and got my, um, I got two bachelor's degrees there, one in philosophy, which was completely useless, but I loved it, and uh, another in English, which is also probably completely <laughs> useless, but um, I developed a love for writing while I was there, and then went right away to get my master's degree at DePaul University in writing. And DePaul, for those who don't know, is in Chicago, and so I, that was in 94, I uh, lived in Chicago for just over 10 years, and during that time, it was kind of a, a big time for music, a big time for um, ska music, certainly. And it was then that I kind of uh, began, um, you know, listening to more ska. Certainly, I'd loved it in, in, high, in high school and middle school. But it was really during those years that I saw a lot of shows, a lot of people came through Chicago. And that combined with my uh, love for writing, I was just looking for a project. So I started working on this book then.
1: As, as a and student?
0: As a student, yep, my, it was a two-year program for a master's degree. So about one year into my program, I started uh, developing an idea for this book and interviewing people. Uh, they would come through shows that I would ask them, you know, can I interview you after the show, things like that. And, you know, I had my little micro cassette tape recorder, and I would tape them. And then do a lot of phone interviews, too. And to be quite honest, I had probably 30 interviews that I sat in, that sat in a box for a number of years, and I didn't do anything with them because I got busy with life. Um, I, you know, started working a number of jobs in Chicago and had kids, and uh, so it was kind of a busy time, and then it wasn't until, I don't know, I think it was my 35th birthday, so about four years ago now, that I decided to pull it back out, take a look at it, finish it, and. you know, I didn't really feel too good about these people who, many of whom had passed away, um, you know, didn't sharing their personal stories with me and me not doing anything with them but, sitting in a box and that just wasn't right. So it was kind of, I was, I was kind of feeling a little bit guilty and got motivated again and uh, put it together. So that, um, I, I also kind of biog you know, biographical information, I also started when I moved back to Chesterton, Indiana, which just is at the very tip of Lake Michigan. It's a beach town at the tip of Lake Michigan, it's about an hour east of Chicago, so it's still part of Chicago really. Um, I had started work when I moved back here in two thousand five, I had started working as a freelance writer for the newspaper here and it's called the Times Ty- of Northwest Indiana. And, uh, you know, something that I could do while, you know, still being able to raise my kids. I had two boys, and uh, they're six and nine now. But my I started doing that when my six-year-old was just born, and it was really great, and it still is really great because I'm able to pick up stories as I'm able, um, council meetings at night, you know, municipal government, really boring things that nobody else wants to cover. <laughs> um, but it was perfect for me because then I could balance that in with the rest of my schedule. So I started working in a job where I was constantly interviewing people, Um, you know, and it was farmers who raised cows for the county fair and, you know, a, a fire chief who just got a new fire truck and, you know, kind of, I think it's interesting, but just kind of, you know, everyday life around here in Northwest Indiana. And I got really used to interviewing people. And so what I did then is when I pulled all these interviews back out, is I re-interviewed some of the artists that I had uh, uh, talked to back then. And then I also interviewed a a slew of new people too. And it was only at that point that I really feel that I was able to write this book. I would not have been able to write it a long time ago um, just out of grad school because I wasn't used to you know, on a daily basis, taking interviews or learning the art of the interview, first of all, and then also um, taking those interviews and weaving them into something interesting to read, uh, a narrative, you know, uh, something where you can read the history and not feel bored with it. It wouldn't feel like a history book. I wanted it to feel like a storybook. So it was at that point that I felt that I was able to do it.
1: So who was who was your first interview way back in I'm guessing this is the oh, 90s. Boy. And were you nervous?
0: Good question. I have no idea who the first person was. I I want to say it was probably Toaster from I mean Bucket from the Toasters. It was probably him. They came through so many times. Um, And it was probably him. And of course, yes, I was nervous. I still get very nervous. I'm I'm working on another book, and I know we'll talk about that later. But I've got an interview next week with Ernest Wranglin. I'm terribly nervous. I've already (laughs) started, like you know, writing notes down of you know what I'm going to ask him and everything. Right. You know, I've probably interviewed you know over 50 people. uh, In this genre and I get incredibly nervous. You know, what if I say something stupid and they say, you know, oh, that's, not, that's not right, that's not the way it was, you know, and I might feel like a heel. Um, so I'm always worried about that, you know, that I'm going you know, to mess something up because there's especially with Ska, I mean, there's like five different versions of every story, so you don't want to make anybody angry and uh, you know, make them think that, you know, that you're an idiot writing this book. So I'm always nervous of that. Um, that's why I'm also constantly reading everything that I can get my hands on try to stay, you know, on top of my game. But um, And then, you know, certainly, too, when you go backstage and you interview people, they're, you know, they're focused on performing. So I always feel like I'm bothering them, you know, and so I just try to get to the heart of it as quickly as I can, you know, get in, say what I have to say, and get out as quickly as I can just because they're so gracious to to let me talk to them. I I mean now I can say, okay, you know, I'm the author of this book, can I talk to you? But back then, you know, I was I was twenty four years old. I was, you know, wearing my goofy outfit at the shows like everybody did back then and I'm like, hey, can I talk to you? I mean, they were really nice to do that to me. I would have I'm like, who are you? What are you doing? You know, but then again, this was a time when there were a lot of fanzines and things like that, so they probably were used to being interviewed, but, you know, a 70-year-old guy who's worked his whole life, and he's got nothing still to show for it, and then some kid comes back there and is like, I want to talk about your history, you know. It was, it's really a leap of faith that they all took with me, and I'm really, really appreciative for it.
1: So that, that's a, a good segue as far as let's get to the point. Why don't we start getting into your book? Okay. Can, can you start off with, with a brief description of of what is ska music and specifically, you know, how does it relate sure. to, to, say, reggae and rock steady and such things?
0: Sure, sure. Well, ska is, um, is kind of a, a blend of a, a bunch of different things that were happening. It's kind of the perfect storm of what was going on in Jamaica at the time. It was um, a time when mento and calypso were very popular, and if you haven't refreshed yourself on what that stuff sounds like, you, you really should just type in, you know, some calypso or something like that. And uh, it, it's, it's really kind of the typical island tourist sound. Um, they would sit with, like, a marimba box and, you know, plink out some, you know, plinky-sounding keys and you know it was uh, you know you think of a rum drink with an umbrella in it every time you hear it so that's what was going on in you know the 30s and the 40s and um, then there was also an influx of music from America that the Jamaicans were picking up on their radios I mean, radios were very new at the time they just uh, goody uh, uh Graham Goodall, they call him Goody, he helped uh, to build one of the island's first, um, you know, radio transmission systems um, uh, for the whole island, and then he worked with Ken Corey and built a recording studio that a lot of people used, uh, Federal Records, but it was during the 50s, you know, that radio started to really come in. and People were starting to own their own transistor radios, their own, you know, units, and they could Pick up on a good night from, you know, Miami or from New Orleans. They could pick up the American music. And so, what was going on at that time, uh, you know, early '50s, was a lot of the swing music, um, a lot of like Count Basie and Benny Goodman and um, stuff like that. So, a lot of the big band music, and then. But, you know it, it was jazz too i mean that's a lot that's what these guys are they're jazz musicians they just all play together in an orchestra and it's a big band and it's you know kind of hip and everything so then there was the r&b that it started to segue into r&b and they're picking this stuff up too the fat domino and um so all that stuff kind of blended together because they started wanting to make their own music so it can't you can't help but create this music that has a, a flavor of all of these things combined, and that's um, that's what they got. They got a uh, kind of a, a jazzy, calypsoy thing going on, and it was called Scott. Now, how how it really became Scott, then, and there's a whole bunch of debate on who. Did what, um, when, everybody will say, you know, I was the first one to do this and I was the originator of this beat and all that. And um, thank you. And um, the, the beat became syncopated. So there's the, the stress is on the off beat. Um, and that's really kind of the key to the rhythm. Now, you can have a syncopated beat with anything, it doesn't necessarily make it Scott. So it's kind of that combined with the horns. You get this big brass section. You know, sometimes these bands are 10, 12 instruments. You know, you've got, honestly, you've got like four trombones, like the Sonny Bradshaw band had four trombones in it. <laughs> um, so they're big brass sounds. And then you've got that syncopated beat in the background. And that's what made Scott. And that came in in the late 50s, the early 60s. Um, you know, American tourists would come down to the play, these big clubs and hear they wanted to hear, you know, the popular music of the day. So a lot of times they're just playing the jazz standards, you know, and then American artists would come down there and tour like Sarah Vaughn, you know, and she would, you know, sing. and, and um, But really it's after the times when they are playing in the clubs, when the music segued into the studios, that ska really took off. So, The record producers, what happened is is, uh, there were a handful of guys that would play uh, records in a a yard, an open yard on the street, um, sometimes in a club. They would play for the masses of people. Now, this was a time before independence. Independence in Jamaica was 1962, so they were still colonized by the Brits. And, you know, it it was a tough time. Um, the dances were a way to kind of get away. You know, music is a means of escape in in many ways, and it certainly was here. So at night, the youths would go out into the yards and listen to the music and dance, you know, and have a red stripe, and, you know, it was fun. So the people who were spinning, the producers, uh, the DJs, they were DJs then, would go to America and buy american hits they would buy the r&b records and play them and boy was that huge but then you know they started seeing that wait a minute i can produce my own stuff a lot cheaper i can have special music that my competitor is not going to have so everybody's going to come to my dance instead and i'm going to make money because they'll be buying my drinks and my liquor and so they started producing their own music um the two main producers was Sir Clement Coxone Dodd, they called him Coxone, or Downbeat. His name of his system was Downbeat. Um, and the other one was Duke Reed. Now, they both had liquor stores. <laughs> one, uh, Duke Reed, his wife had one. She won the lottery in Jamaica and so built the studio. And it was called Treasure Island, and or Isle. And then Cox and Dodd, his uh, mom, had a liquor store slash restaurant. You know, they served a little bit of food. but So they were trying to ba- basically make money, sell liquor. How can I sell more liquor? Pay, play some music. People will come. They'll drink when they dance. So it was very kind of like a, you know, they did it for practical reasons. Um, but then they started making their own music, um, building these studios in their Establishments that they had. And so Coxstone had Studio One and Duke Reed had Treasure Isle, um, named after a radio show that he had called Treasure Isle Time. And so they started making records. Um, at first, they were, you know, they were 45 is what it was, but they would take and they would record um, in the studio using a set of musicians that they would comb from the clubs. So there was like, you know, the silver. The Silver Slipper, the uh, uh, Bournemouth Beach Club, the Club Havana, um, all these clubs that were playing the big band music, they would go there and they'd say, hey, you know, can you come by and and play play for me and I'll pay you? And, of course, music then was an occupation. It was a trade. Um, So they were for hire. And a lot of these musicians would go from club to club, studio to studio, you know, contracts were, you know, written and never obeyed. And they recorded music for both producers. There's tons of other producers too. Um, And they would record for them. Now, when they would record, they would make one pressing of the record. And the reason why this was done was because they wanted nobody else to have it. Because when they would take that to to the dance, To play it, they would even scratch off the label or not even put a label on there because they did not want any spies seeing what is this hit song that is making the crowd go wild because they did not want their competitor to have it. That record, the term for that record is called a special. And that became, yeah, that became a band in future years in the 80s, 79 to 82-ish, 84-ish. Or a one-off. They also called it a one-off. It's also called soft wax, a lot of different names for it. But these were the early days when they just had these, you know, were just installing these machines. And a lot of things are homemade. Um, At the dances, they would make huge speakers, huge amplifiers, um, and cabinet makers made them. Um, putting the the wood together, and then the inside of the amplifiers, you know wiring it to the the sound uh, equipment, they would go to like the local electrical store, which was called Warnard's, and they would uh, get uh you know an expert there. they were like radio shack guys, you know they knew everything, so they would help them and they would make these things from scratch. Um, the big, sis- the big speaker systems—they called houses of joy. I just love that. <laughs> I think that's just so cool. Um, that's what they were, and they would stack up, and- stack them up, and they would spin records. Sometimes, even um, in one yard, they would maybe even have two day- DJs playing off each other. They'd say, "Okay, Coxon's going to play from 10 to 11. Degrees going to play from 11 to 12, and then you know whoever was most popular was crowned the king at the end of the night." Um, they got very flamboyant. You know, Duke Greed was known to to have bandoliers of bullets across his chest, you know, um, like he was like Clint Eastwood or something. And he would carry pistols in holsters at his side and a crown. And he would ride in on a throne that his uh, posse was carrying him in on. And very flamboyant. He was a former policeman too. So he was uh, well-connected and probably equally corrupt. Um, but it was, um, quite a sight to see these guys. I can only be envious, you know, people who tell me the stories about being there. But but that's kind of how Scott got started, and it really had its heyday um, before the summer of 65, because in 65 is when the music started to change a little bit. And it doesn't mean that ska went away, but... And I'm sorry, I want to say it's in 66. In 66, they had a really... Um, strong heat waves. It was a hot, hot summer, and the music literally slowed down because uh, people weren't dancing with fervor. Because ska is very energetic, you know. There's tons of horns, the syncopated beat, the you know, it's fast, it's fun, it's it brings joy. Um, but then you know, it's a hot summer. Um, the crowds are getting a little bit testy with each other. Um, there's some gangsters coming in that, you know, gangs are forming and stuff. And, um, you know, Rude Boys are involved in these gangs and, you know, there'll be shootings every now and then. So in the summer of 66 is where we see the music really take a change. Um, in the, uh, the most popular ska band of the time, the skatalites has broken up. Um, Don Drummond is in uh, the about May of 66, has just been sentenced to Bellevue um, for killing his, uh, his uh, girlfriend. And so that band is broken up. And, you know, so it's really a summer of change. And the music changes, uh, the horns start to... Leave. Um, maybe there'll be one horn in a song or two horns in a song, but that's about it. So there's no work for these instrumentalists, which is really tough. Um, vocal. It's the the golden years of of for vocalists as they come in and they really start to showcase their talent, um, singing a lot of uh, songs about love. We have a lot, you know, the Return of the Love Song, and um, but certainly some songs too with themes of you know of, uh, simmer down, you know, your violence, um, you know, songs about gun court, you know, um, songs about rude boys, um, putting your guns down, things like that. So this music, it becomes known as rock steady. It is literally how people responded to the music. They were swaying steady, but it was not as slow as reggae. Um, it definitely was still lively. But it was, you know, just kind of pleasant music. Um, and that's what we we see a lot uh, during these years, 66, 67. Um, and it's when the music slows down even more it, that it becomes reggae. And reggae, the beat is different, too. Not always, but reggae kind of has like a double beat. It's like that da 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 You don't really get that in... In ska, and ska is just that, you know, uh, very quick. So reggae then takes over and, you know, I don't follow it too much after that because although I do like it very much, um, I leave that for other historians because it's that ska period and the reggae and the, uh, rock steady period that I'm most interested in where it's more of a, a Jamaican jazz, as they call it.
1: Some of the more popular, and I don't want to get into a, a deep discussion of reggae, but like Bob Marley starts out playing Ska, does he not? He
0: does. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and he was backed up, the Whalers were backed up by these studio musicians that I'm talking about that Cox and Dodd and Duke Reed had in their studio. So they came in and they'd say, hey, you know, we want to sing for you. And they're singing songs like Simmer Down and One Cup of Coffee. Those are all ska songs that Bob Marley sang. And, um, you know, there's kind of a couple interesting stories in my book where, uh, like, Lester Sterling, who was a saxophonist uh, with the Scatolites, he's still around, uh, he remembers, you know, Rita Marley coming into the studio in her school uniform Mm. uh, because she was fascinated by the musicians. And this was before she was even, you know... Involved with Bob Marley, so she would come around and listen to him play and or sing I mean and uh, the the instrumentalists, the scatolites, were the ones that were backing him up so when you hear simmer down, those are the scatolites in the background, and they uh, they don 't really play too much anymore because uh, Lloyd Knit the drummer just passed away uh, a few months ago, but um you know, up until those last days, uh, they were still playing Timber Down every time, and Doreen Schaefer sings it now in concert. So that, it's because of the Scatolites, really, that, that Bob Marley was able to be a success. There were a lot of people who had, you know, a hand in his success, and the Scatolites are definitely one of them.
1: Please talk more about the Scatolites, then. Okay. They seem to play an important role in your story.
0: Sure. Yeah, they definitely do. They, they were only together for 18 months. And, you know, when you consider how rich of a history, you know, Jamaican music has, it's pretty stunning to think that, you know, this band that was so influential was around for such a short amount of time. Um, the Scanlights had a number of people in their band, um, but they were the studio musicians, and basically Tommy McCook, you know, just put the the band together one day because these were the musicians who were playing to make the producers money. Um, they would literally, when I said that before that playing music was an occupation, I re- I literally meant it. They would come in and clock in with a time card. They got mm. no royalties. So that's why, you know, they're still a little bit, you know, peeved about it today. Um, we want to give our producers credit for really launching the music, but they really did rip off the artists um and they were in it to make money, so they paid them just you know i mean it was it was a new thing to them you know I mean they, were, they didn't know anything about the business, and certainly not it's not like it was today like it is today. so they came in, they clocked in just like if they were a tailor or a shoemaker or a garden worker you know working in a garden. they came in and they clocked in, and they got paid for that day. So they worked seven days a week, um, you know, since that's why a lot of times the uh, instrumentalists change from song to song, but it's the same group of guys. So one day Tommy McCluck, uh, who's saxophone player, uh, says, you know what? I'm tired of this. Let's get a little bit of the action for ourselves. And so he puts together a band and, you know, they start playing out at the clubs, um, the Bournemouth uh, Beach Club and, um, you know, it's more of the downtown clubs, not the uptown shishi clubs, because these guys too are, you know, they're ganja smokers, they're rastas. Um, they're not allowed in the uptown clubs. So um, the scat get together in 1964, and there's, you know, a handful of them, and you know we're we're talking about like, uh, you know, Johnny Dizzy Moore. He's a trumpet player. He's a a rasta through and through. Uh, Lloyd Nibbs was playing the drum, Nib, singular, he was playing the drum, um, Lester Sterling, uh, he was playing the alto sax, and Roland Alfonso was playing the tenor sax, Lloyd Brevet, he's uh, upright bass, he is really something to see play, he is perhaps my favorite um, just a little bounce when he plays, and he's just really into it, long dreads, the pork pie hat on. He's still around. He doesn't play anymore, but he's, he's in Jamaica, back in Jamaica. Um, they had about four vocalists that would filter in and filter out. Um, Jackie Mattu, he would uh, play piano, and Tommy McCook, of course, was on sax. Um, and then uh, my, the subject of my next book, Don Drummond, would play the trombone. Um, And then, you know, Doreen Schaefer was one of the vocalists and Lord Tanamo and um, there were about four people and they would just kind of filter in and filter out. So these guys would start playing um, at these clubs and they were the hit of the island. They were huge. Um, it's not like you can. It's not like you can say it's the same as today. You know, like, well, what did they do on the radio charts? You know, it wasn't like that. It's just that they drew a huge crowd. They would play for hours. Um, everybody would take a solo. Of course, these were all like the, the top musicians, so everybody would solo, and it would go on for hours. And people were, you know, dancing, or they would be you know, riveted, like, you know, Don Drummond would take a solo and then Ernest Wranglin on the guitar would go and play off of him and then then Don would go and then Ernest would go and they'd play off of each other and it was just, you know, they were always, it was like this this, uh, culture of one-upmanship and, you know, some people think, um, I talked to P.J. Patterson who was the manager of the Scatellites back in these days and he then became Prime Minister of Jamaica for, I think, 16 years, some crazy long run. Um, but I was talking to him and his, his theory about why they broke up is that, you know, they were, these musicians were all individual musicians and they were too good to stay together because they all wanted their own kind of, you know, limelight. And so there was a lot of, you know, infighting and jealousy and competition and, you know, I want my pay and, and things like that. Now, Also, at the same time uh, as the breakup, and certainly that definitely had, uh, you know, a component in this. But at the same time, in uh, January 2nd, well, it was January 2nd because it happened at 3 in the morning. January 2nd, 1965, Don Drummond murders his girlfriend. Now, Don Drummond is, he is the highlight of the band. He is the best trombonist on the island he was a he had his own band he had he would play in any band and he would draw people uh you know they would say you know this weekend Sonny Bradshaw and guest trombonist Don Drummond and he was the draw okay so it it would be like saying you know like the Jackson 5 and then you know everybody goes see Michael Jackson so um they don't really care about the LaToyas or the other <laughs> center band so people would go to see him so when he is no longer in the band because he's, you know, facing a murder trial, which went on for about, um, he wasn't sentenced to Bellevue until a year and a half later because he was declared unfit to stand trial. Um, he's not in the band anymore, then, you know, it's it, the band is not the same. So they only lasted 18 months, but um, it is largely Don Drummond's compositions, that we hear Uh, the Scandalites play today, we hear on their recordings, um, all the huge hits, Occupation, which later became Music is My Occupation, Eastern Standard Time, Man in the Street, uh, This Man is Back, all these songs uh, were Don Drummond's original compositions. And during the time of his life, uh, he composed over 300 songs, that's not to mention the the tunes that he played on for all these producers um, that he's not credited for. That's not his live performances, of course, where he you know he was very skilled at improvisation. Um, so he was incredibly prolific. Uh, he died at the age of 37 mysteriously at Bellevue. Um, but really, the uh, in my estimation, are not the same without Don Drummond. Um, but you go and. I, I had the pleasure of hearing them in nineteen ninety six at University of Chicago. and I know a lot of people have had the opportunity to hear them live uh, over the years because they they never stop. These guys are eighty years old and they're still up on stage and they they play till like Lloyd Nibb, they played till uh, you know four days before he died. Uh, Roland alfonso, he he fell over on stage, you know, and uh, died uh, in the hospital later. but I mean, they literally played to their last dying day. Uh, to see these guys perform is unbelievable. I mean, you're, you're witnessing history, but you feel the power that they have when you watch them. It is something uh, that I cannot put into words. So if you have a chance to even go on YouTube and see one of their performances, you know, you'll get a little bit of it. Um, but to see it live, it's, it's really something. And their music is, is very powerful. It's a typical jazz uh, form where well, they'll play the theme at first and then each one of them will take a solo and play their variation on that theme and then they return to the theme at the end um, I really like that because then you kind of anticipate each part and you kind of know it's coming up and so you're really excited about it and uh, it really charges up the crowd so if, if you're going to start if you say, Sky, what's that? pick up the Scatlites, any one of their albums and that'll be a great introduction for you
1: Perfect. And now y- you call in your book Doreen Schaefer, the queen of ska, and Laurel Aitken, the godfather of ska. Can you <laughs> talk about them, please?
0: Sure. Well, Doreen, she is such a sweet lady. And, I, you know, I call her the queen of ska, but I mean, there's definitely, there are definitely a few female vocalists that are doing their thing at this time. I think maybe why I crown her the queen is uh, <laughs> she never stopped. She never stopped. Um, you know, that during that time, we have a lot of uh, female vocalists that gave uh, gave it a good run, like Millie Small, My Boy Lollipop. I mean, that song really put Ska on the map in many ways because it was the first international hit for, for Jamaica in 1964. So certainly Millie Small could, could be a princess of Ska. Um, and, uh, you know... Um, I think that, um, you know, there are a couple of other people, too, like, you know, Millicent Todd, who's better known as Patsy. She does a lot of duets with people. She did duets with Sarah Morgan. Um, She uh, did duets with uh, uh, Stranger Cole. Um, But, you know, as far as, like, really being... And, and she still she still does play today, but she took off, and I don't mean play, I mean sings. She's only really returned to it um, in 2002. It was the first time she had been on stage in 35 years, and that was at the uh, the, the Legends of Ska concert that was in Toronto in 2002 that my good friend uh, Brad Klein put together, um, but you know she took thirty five years off. she worked in a hospital. nobody knew who she was there. They didn't you know know her history and everything. and you know you can read about why she why she did that because she had very good reason to do that. but um I think that Doreen is just really something because she uh, you know she's a grandma, you know her her grandkids think she's like the coolest thing ever because you know here she she's going you know, playing all these cities in Japan and everywhere else and going around at, uh, you know, midnight singing up on stage. I and mean, she is one, one cool lady. So she's, I don't even know how old she is. Definitely in her seventies, maybe even possibly pushing 80. Um, and just, uh, uh, you know, her voice is so sweet and so melodic and, you know, to, to listen to her, it's, it's really pleasant. Um, So that's why I call her the queen of sky I think and she has some interesting stories about how she almost you know didn't have a career Um, she lived in in the um, what we would call the projects in the government yards Um, and you know it's not like mail got to her and so she almost missed her opportunity when she missed you know an invitation to come sing and and in one of the tourist clubs uh, I mean a uh, cruise ship and if it weren't for that i mean she probably wouldn't have continued her career because uh you know she would have had to find some other occupations so it's kind of neat to hear how you know serendipity kind of comes into play a lot of times when you think about some of these legends now for laurel aiken he's known as the godfather scott that's kind of his his self-proclaimed moniker so he's no longer around but uh he, uh, he's, he's just known as the Godfather of Scott. Why? Well, you know, I think for him, uh, he was one of those, uh, he's still there.
1: Yeah, I'm still okay, here.
0: Sorry. I heard it click. Um, he was one of those artists that had success in Jamaica, but then there is this huge, uh, wave of, of uh, immigration to England, now that happened for a number of reasons there was uh they were going to be kind of closing off the doors to to immigrants uh there was like a certain window right after World War II, so a lot of west to west Indian immigrants and so there was like a huge in you know influx uh, before these doors closed and a lot of the musicians during that time wanted to kind of go and you know like I said, rock studies kind of come in and things are changing and instrumentalists are seeing things dry up. So there's a a number of musicians who try to, you know, make a go at it in England. Desmond Decker leaves, Prince Buster goes over and he starts up his blue beat, the blue beat label up there. Laura Lakin, he was one of them that go to try to make a, you know, a career there. And, you know, he told me he just wasn't, he was having success, but he thought he could do better. And, so he goes to England and he has a uh, you know a second life there. Really, uh, that's where the mods and a lot of the, the subcultures start to uh, gravitate towards the West Indian music that's being played in the uh, the neighborhoods like Brixton and in um, Coventry, the other, the other nearby towns, industrial towns, um, where a lot of West immigrants live, uh, West Indian immigrants live. So they're picking up on this flavor of this Jamaican music, and they're, the the white middle class or you know lower class youth are combining that with what they hear with their own culture and flavor, which is you know, mod and uh, even punk, and it blends into a new form of ska. So artists like, you know, Prince Buster and Laura Lakin, they they experience a rebirth there. There's a whole new uh, audience, not just culturally, but also a younger audience, And so Scott takes on a very different form then. And so Laura Lakin, you know, he's an older guy, all these youths. That's how he he became known as the godfather of Scott because he's kind of an old guy. He was kind of an old guy then. Um, And then the skinhead culture picked up um, on it as well because these are the, you know, the working class youth and they really like the flavor of the music. And so then... um, Many of the artists like Laurel Aiken, um, you know, cater to their market and write a lot of um, songs about, you know, being the boss skinhead and things like that. These are not racist skinheads, by the way. I just want to, there was that element and that did, that, you know, I do talk about that uh, racist element in my book, but that's not what skinheads really are. Um, Skinheads are white um, working class youth. And um, it was a subculture then and still is. And so they celebrated their their favorite artist, um, Laura Lakin, and then we see other um, artists that emerge from that culture as well, uh, like Judge Dread and and things like that. So um, I think that's why he has that moniker. Is he he was an old guy with a new youth, you know, new youth audience. And so um, was he God Godfather, meaning like you know the best. Mm, no, <laughs> but. Uh, but certainly uh, worthy of that kind of respect.
1: Is he known as the godfather in Jamaica and England? or? Oh,
0: yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Anybody who knows. But but it's, you know, for that reason. It's right. not because of, you know, like, oh, he's the best. He's the foundation of everything. Uh-uh. It's not that.
1: Um, so briefly, before we we jump over to England anymore, can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, what is a rude boy and rude boy culture? That's a, it's a Jamaican sure. thing, isn't it?
0: It is. It is. And you know, but then it like it, you know, like everything, it takes on a life of its own. You know, when it goes over to England and, and then here in the United States too. But let, yeah, let me talk a little bit about this history because I think it's fascinating. Um, a rude boy was a member of a gang. Back in uh, Jamaica, like I said, in the, you know, 1960s, um, there was a lot of um, unrest because people, there was huge unemployment. Uh, The youth, you know, especially for a guy, um, there was nothing available when it came to a job. Um, There wasn't training, you know, school was very rudimentary. Um, and then, you know, so they would come out of school at age 16 and find very little in the way of opportunities for them. Um, and so a lot of, you know, people started getting together. And, and also, too, the family unit's very different. Um, frequently, dads would not be around. Um, that's why places like the Alpha Boys School became so popular because uh, there were a lot of kids who were the parents were not able to take care of them. Either dad was not in the picture or dead or, I mean, there's just a ton of poverty. So it's, you know, people are sick and it's, it's, it's tough. So the kids need, you know, the, the boys, especially, you know, they, they gravitate toward each other for, you know, their, their family unit and a lot of gangs start to form. It's not like, you know, our gangs today, but it really is not that much different. Um, but a lot of these gangs, like, you know, they called they were called, like, the Phoenix, um, the Spanglers, that was another one. Let me think of what else. The Vikings, That was the name of some of them? And they were just groups of guys that would, you know, dress up really nice um, in their best clothes because they want to look like they're um, well-to-do and they're you know, a little flashy. They wear sunglasses, which they call darkers. They wear sunglasses during the daytime. Um, you know, just mischievous things, um, like jumping on trolley cars, street cars is, you know, instead of paying for the fare, they'll jump on the back and then jump off and things like that. Well, there were a handful of them that were really bad guys. though. I mean, crime, when you have poverty, you have crime because, people are disenfranchised. They don't know where the next meal is going to come from. They're going to do what they have to do to get it. So um, some of these guys were pretty bad. And um, there's a story in my book. I hope you don't mind if I could tell this really quick, but there's a guy named Busby. is a true story. Uh, he was a rude boy. And he, um, one night, Went to Derek Morgan and said, "I want you to make a song of me." And Derek Morgan was terrified, you know, because this guy's a bad guy, you know. He's got a reputation, and uh, you know he's known for taking his beer and shaking up and spraying it on people. I mean, he's just a you know, jerk. So he's he's scared of him, and uh, he says, "Well, what kind of song do you want me to make?" And he's like, "I want you to make one about me." So he, Derek Morgan, goes to. Uh, Leslie Kong, who owns the label Beverly's, he owned uh, a restaurant ice cream shop with his two brothers, his two brothers over here, the store, and they're laughing, you know, they're laughing about it. And, and he says, you know, I got to make a song. This, this guy, he's a bad guy. I'm scared. I don't know what I'm going to do. And Leslie Kong says, well, I don't, he, he's called Beverly's. That's what they call him. And Beverly says, you know, I don't know what I, what we're going to do. We can't make a song that fast. He wants it on Friday night. We can't, Make one that fast. Do you have anything written? And Derek Morgan says, "Yeah, I have this song that I would play around. You know, I have a piano part written." And he said, "Well, all right, let's let's go do it." So they go to the studio and they make this record. And uh, they take the record on that Friday night, and Busby says, "All right, I want you to take it up there to the turntable, and I want you to tell him that it, you know he's to play it at midnight." So at midnight, they the record drops and they, they play the song, and the song is uh, it's Rougher Than Rough, Tougher Than Tough, Strong Like Lion, We Are Iron. And uh, when Busby hears the song, he, say, he says, you know, go get me a box of beer. So Derek Morgan comes over and gives him a box of beer. He takes the, the beer, and as that part is playing, so Rougher Than Rough, Tougher Than Tough, he smashes the beer against the wall, and he screams, Iron! And he's, uh, you know, Derek Morgan says, you know, he's a real tough guy like that. So the next night, he, uh, Busby, I guess, is, uh, you know, up to his antics again. He's really bragging and boasting about this and everything, being very boastful. And uh, some, a friend gets him to come to a a party. And uh, at that party, he's he's shot in in the head by a fellow gang member. So Busby ends up dying. And uh, Derek Morgan's comment about that is that song really, really takes him to the grave. And uh, yeah, I just, uh, to me, that's (laughs) kind of the epitome of uh, root boy culture right there. Of course, when, Uh you know, the West Indians immigrate to England, you know, they pick up on the style of the sunglasses and then the pork pie hat. And, you know, that's what we see of the, the root boy culture today. That little. Um, animation that the specials um, have that was designed by Jerry Dammers. His name's Walt Jabsco. It's the little guy that looks like he's skanking, you know, and uh, that's kind of that culture, you know, where it comes from. But it really wasn't, uh, you know, these guys are bad. A lot of them, I, there was another story of a guy going into a school and uh, abusing uh, a girl, a schoolgirl, um, sexually abusing her. And, you know, they they were not good people. So some of them were innocent, maybe just you know mischievous, but most of them were pretty bad.
1: So so let's uh, jump over to England now um, sure. and tell us a little bit about England's God specifically uh, two tone music as a, a genre and as a label.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know, like kind of mentioned before, a lot of the West Indians uh, are playing in these clubs. Um, in areas where there's, uh, you know, down, the downtown clubs, they're a little bit more working class. And so the youth, uh, the disenfranchised youth, who are identifying with a lot of the same thing, the uh, same themes of unemployment, and, you know, there's the same kind of culture where it's like an oppressed economic time, and people are looking for something to feel good about. The music is lively. And so the people gravitate to, in England to ska for the same reason. So the youth pick up on this, the flavor. And then, like I said, they combine it with their own punk tendencies that that's what they're experiencing there in England. Um, in about 1979, we kind of get a, a lot of bands that form in that year. Um, some of them form kind of, you know, separate from each other, but at the same time. Um, and so one of the, the most important band to develop during this time, of course, is the specials. This, uh, Jerry Dammers puts together this band. It's really his, it's his baby. It really is. And he puts together a group of musicians. It's his vision. Um, he, it's his marketing and he puts together a label because he is definitely an independent guy still today to a fault. (laughs) Um, and he won't even play with the, the specials anymore. He hasn't. I mean, he, he just reviews do He wants to do it his way. And that's it. Um, I got a four-page letter from him telling me why I could not use the lyric, have the rights to put the lyrics to his songs in my book. And it was because, you know, I had spoken to some of the other members of the band, and he didn't want me doing that. And he's just, he's a tough guy. He is a tough guy, but he's a visionary. And we get you know, we really have to, to give it up to Jerry Damers. So he puts together this band and he puts together his own label called Two Tone. And the name comes from he and the, the the black and white check. He had talked to um, the manager of the clash about the band and the he told him, you know, you've got a Bernie Rhodes told him you've got to do something to market yourself. And so he started coming up with an image of how he could market his band and market the label, and he came up with the black and white checks that are associated so much with ska now because it was some tape that he had on his scooter. Um, The mod culture, scooter culture was very popular at that time, and he had decorated his with with some black and white check tape. Well, that became, you know, the colors of two-tone, the name two-tone and it just so happened that that matched the band's the racial makeup of a lot of the bands at this time. They were two-tone as well. So one of the reasons why they were so popular, um, is because they brought the, you know, two races together so that the crowds were, you know, were a mixed crowd and you're, you're hearing songs about unity. And, you know, it's a time when there's a lot of racial strife in England. So these messages were extremely important. Um, they signed a number of uh, other bands to their label, uh, the Selector being the next one, and the Selector had, you know, by contract, you know, a few more rights, too. They could also help sign bands, and they had a little bit of create, you know, creative leeway and things like that. Um, Madness was on the two-tone label for a song or two. And then they went off on their own, and uh, but there were a number of bands that they signed, even uh, The Beat, which later uh, became known as the English Beat in here in the U.S. because there was already a band called The Beat here, um, even though they stunk. And so <laughs> The Beat went on for a couple songs, and then they went and formed their own label, Go Feet, um, Body Snatchers. Uh, Elvis Costello even came on for one song because he was having trouble with his label at the time. Um, So, I mean, in a short amount of time, it was a huge flash in the pan. Unfortunately, that's exactly what it was. Um, You know, in England, it got very... They're very loyal to their music. I mean, you go to like a, a show from Madness now. They have a show called, a concert called Madstock. They literally will be jumping up and down to one step beyond, and it literally will register on the Richter scale. These people love their music, okay? But it also is a very trendy music. Uh, they're very fickle. It's hard, It's strange how there's this combination of, You know, they're fickle and loyal at the same time. They're two opposites, but it's true. So uh, ska music, um, the two-tone era, came and went rather quickly. Um, I kind of talk about that a little bit in my book, about why um, a lot of the band members um, kind of expound on why they think. Um, It seems like the death knell for every one of them was when they tried to come to America. Um, it just did not fly here at first. Um, certain people caught on to it. Debbie Harry liked it, you know, and Mick Jagger, you know, tried to start it up here. And But it just, you know, it just didn't fly here because at that time, it was a time in America where Queen was big and arena bands were big. And, you know, you, you're playing to a huge arena and you're, you know, like Ranking Roger from the English Beat says, you know, we weren't used to people sitting down eating a hamburger during our show you know and that's the era that it is it's like you forget when you put yourself into the context of what's going on at the time you know then you realize well that's why it didn't take off i mean you're you know freddie mercury is a far cry from you know madness madness they call it madness you know and that's just not going to fly so it didn't go well here and uh you know then there was constant touring with all these groups and uh, a lot of infighting a lot of you know you know physical fights and and smashing equipment and you know they got mad at each other they're away from their families they're not having the success that they want and you know they had huge success at first you know where they're they're topping madonna on the charts and the limo is showing up to take them and you know to shows and stuff and then all of a sudden nothing so it was it was tough um and so it it uh it went out rather quickly. You know, a lot of the bands kind of held on or did their own thing or they went in their own directions. And, uh, you know, they're around, uh, some of them are still around today. Madness, they, you know, they came came and went and they've done a few things over the years and now they're back strong again. And we just saw the 30th reunion of a lot of these bands. So the selector, you know, played, you know, various members of them. There's still a lot of inciting. um same with the specials. You know, they came to the U S, uh, Jerry Dammers, of course, refused to play and Neville Staples couldn't come because he's got a warrant out for his arrest here, which you can find out why in my book. But, uh, there's, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why things aren't the same as they were, but you know, they still, a lot of them still do play. And boy, like I said, the fan base is still strong.
1: And so finally, uh, how, how has Ska gone in America? What is Ska like here?
0: Well, Like like I said, in the 90s, um, ska really had a heyday. I think a lot of people in America, um, myself included, my generation, we started hearing, some people started hearing the two-tone ska in college. I was a little bit later than that, so I heard uh, bands like Madness on a show called The Young Ones that was on MTV. Um, I saw Madness they they did like a guest appearance on there. And then there was a show called 120 Minutes that was on MTV, which I think is coming back. Matt Penfield, I think is on some cable channel now, but he, but this show was, you know, introduced the, um, what was alternative music at that time. And that term has no meaning anymore, but it was progressive music. Well, a lot of it was the ska music from, from England. And so that's how I got introduced to it. You know, I saw, um, the beat, you know, and, you're in the bathroom and, you know, all these great, great songs. Um, And so then I think that's when a lot of bands in America started forming right out of that era. They started, you know, hearing the the English music and then they kind of delved into the roots and found the Jamaican versions. And then they put together their own bands. And of course, just like everything American, it's a big melting pot and it blends with every, every other form of music. So, you know, all through the 90s, we've got, you know, Fishbone that's blending with, you know, harder rock and um, hardcore, and we get bands that are fusing ska with pop music, and then you've got No Doubt and Real Big Fish, and, you know, we have bands that blend it with with uh, more traditional jazz, and so we get the New York ska Jazz Ensemble, Methascopolies, and... Um That's with, a great name. Isn't it the best? That's my favorite Scott. <laughs> That's another thing with Scott, like the Scatolites, Even though you don't say scotholites, it's Scatolites. Um there's that, that weird thing with Ska just being cheeky, you know, where they try to make ska into you know the names of everything and it's not the Scoffleys, I just love it. When I sign my name sometimes I say your fellow scomrad. You know, it <laughs> is it's just a goofy thing that people do with with ska and it's you know, there's some ridiculous ones out there. My favorite one is a band in England called Tutin Common, instead of too common, <laughs> and so they have like a, a like a um, a king tut with the black and white checked for his um, headdress instead. It's really cool. But anyway, um, so uh, American style really fused with every other form. We have Buddha glow skulls that's, that's forming with like that L.A. Um, kind of street Latin vibe and. Um, it's, there's even, you know, ska a cappella. I mean, not a cappella, but um, whatever the opposite of a cappella is, all instruments. It's just one guy playing all the instruments and just some really cool stuff. So um, some bands had huge longevity, the Toasters. They still play today at the hugely influential New York scene, uh, Bim Scala Bim and uh, the Slackers and... Um, uh just a lot of bands, well, even uh, Fishbone still tours from time to time. But for the most part, um, you know, when the millennium comes around, Ska really dies. It's, I think, and I talk about it in my book, I think, you know, one of the reasons is is anybody who was in a high school band was in a Ska band. You know, it's <laughs> like, there was yeah, and there's like 15 of them. And then they go to play a show, and then they try to split up the $200, you know, that they're paid between 15 members, and it's just not going to work. So, and then they, you know, they go off, and they get a family, and they get a job, and, you know, that's it. So it's, they're not career musicians. They're kids, and, you know, it was fun. But then that whole scene kind of died. Um, but is not dead and uh there's the bands that still stick around bucket from the toaster he from the toaster he will be around to his dying day he'll be like the the roland alfonso that kills over on stage or the judge dread that kills over on stage that, that'll be bucket he is he will carry the torch of ska forever and uh, he had the moon ska label in new york that produced and distributed uh, almost every ska band that was worth a grain of salt and then um then now he has megalith in 2000 he started up megalith instead so moon scaffolded and he started up megalith and he still tours today um, a lot of these guys do so i think anybody that's still around there's there's kind of like this resurgence of you know rock steady soul Ska coming back now too like the green room rockers and the soul radics um, there's there's some good stuff out there so i think it, you know it's got to be good now you got to kind of Put your money where your mouth is, and uh, so we'll see where Scott goes from here, but it will not die
1: right It's amazing how quick an hour can go, as you know as an interviewer, <laughs>
0: especially uh, when you get me talking <laughs> <ska>. <laughs>
1: well you're an easy interview
0: awesome <laughs> um,
1: tell us tell us what you're up to now. you say you're working on a book
0: I am I'm working on a biography of don drummond he's he's just an interesting story, um, my favorite musician by far, his music is very. Mournful and uh, haunting and extreme. He's a genius. He's a genius, but his story is fascinating. is a fascinating story as well. So I traveled to Kingston in June and spent some time at the Alpha Boys School and uh, touring, kind of going around and digging up uh, archives and going around to some of the sites. And so. I am looking for an agent now, and I'm hopefully going to be. Uh, I've been writing. I've got about four chapters down, and um, we'll see. I'm just trying to put it all together, and it's a. Uh, it's not going to sit in a shoebox. I, I promise. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great, and so so we can also look for your writing in the New Times of Northwest Indiana, yeah, correct? Just the Times. Oh, the Times, not, new. not the New Times. Yeah,
0: not the New Times. No, it might might be some old stuff in there. Yeah, the Times of Northwest Indiana, <laughs> and then. Uh, yeah, I, um, you know, write for some magazines around from time to time. But, yeah, that's the main place you'll find me. Perfect. It, yeah, I have a website called skabook.com. So you can kind of keep up with me there and I post.
1: Ska book dot
0: Skabook.com, yep.
1: Okay. Well, thank you, Heather. We really appreciate you. Being, I appreciate you being on the show. Well, thank and, you. Uh, it's
0: been a lot of fun.
1: And uh, good luck with your future invent endeavors.
0: Thank you very much.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Heather Augustine, author of Ska and Oral History, a 2010 publication on McFarlane & Company. Please check new books in popular music regularly for interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.